0: For listeners of Film Jive, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply go to audibletrial.com filmjive. That's audibletrial.com filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today.
1: I'm just a little person One person In a sea Of many not aware of me I do my little job and live my little life eat my little meals miss my little kid and wife and some somewhere far away i'll find a second little person who will look at me and say
0: hey everyone welcome back to the film jive podcast i am your host zach batanti and joining me on today's episode is co-host simone barros and special guest jim laskowski of the directors club podcast and creator of the Now Playing Network, which is a pop culture entertainment network of some really terrific podcasts, like Supporting Characters, hosted by Bill Ackerman, uh, Tracks of the Dam, which is hosted by Jim's former Directors Club co-host, and previous guest on this show, Patrick Rapole, and then, of course, Jim's 2 podcasts, Directors Club and Pop Culture Club. If you haven't visited the Now Playing Network, I would highly recommend it. We are recording on August 2nd, 2016. This is episode number 97, where we are discussing director and screenwriter Charlie Kaufman's 2008 magical realist film, Synecdoche, New York, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Catherine Keener, Tom Noonan, and Michelle Williams.
1: Dear diary, I'm afraid I'm gravely ill. It is perhaps times like these that one reflects on things past, an article of clothing from when I was young, a green jacket, a walk with my father, a game we once played. Pretend, Pretend we're fairies. I'm, I'm a girl, girl fairy, and fairy and my name is Laura Lee. And you're a boy fairy and your name is Titri. Pretend when we're fairies, we fight each other. And I say, stop hitting me or I'll die. And you hit me again. And I say, now I have to die. And you say, but I'll miss you. And I say, I have, I have to. to and you'll have to wait a million years to see me again and i'll be put in a box and all i'll need is a tiny glass of water and lots of tiny pieces of pizza and the box will have wings like an airplane and you ask where will it take you home i say
2: Synecdoche, New York, depicts a man named Caden enduring a life which he sadly has little control. Contrarily, he omnipotently doles out directorial notes to actors controlling all aspects of a monumental theatrical production. These notes will correspond to the notes I get every day from my God, Caden announces as a director confined by his desperate ambition to capture absolute honesty on stage in a vast warehouse he builds an amphitheater that becomes a city and a cast that becomes a population of actors playing the people in his life playing the actors playing the people in his life his attempt at absolute honesty haunts him into merely replicating the world and thus locking himself in a theatrical deja vu and locking himself out of the world, which he has no control. A world where a man, surreptitiously watches Caden from behind trees, where animated images of Caden prance about unnoticed on television, where his sometimes lover, always friend, lives in a house perpetually on fire, where from his daughter's childhood diary, he reads a live stream of her thoughts, as she grows through puberty to womanhood, where his daughter's flower tattoos wilt and flake off her skin in a dried black petal that Caden holds as she dies. In these moments that contradict our experience with the physical world, something occurs that pushes beyond our reality into meta-realism. Something besides what we think is real is real. It's magic when these things are caused by an incantation whispered over bubbling kettles or crystal balls. It's science fiction when these things are caused by a rip in the space-time continuum. It's religion when caused by God and myth when caused by many gods. But in Synecdoche, New York, it's caused by none of these things. The man watching Caden is not Caden's future self sent back in time or Caden's alter ego moving into a lucid dream, but simply a man watching Caden. The meta-realism collapses into simple reality. If in Charlie Kaufman's body of work, these moments that stretch the boundaries of reality are evidenced on screen as being caused by a medical memory eraser procedure, or caused by coincidences created by a novelist's obsession with her subject and a screenwriter's obsession with both her and himself, or caused by the principles in a world in which one man's brain can be entered through a genetically inherited portal. If Kaufman places the causality on screen in his other works, what does his omission of, of causality express within Synecdoche, New York?
3: I will say, that it is less about searching for a cause in the external and more about the search, like you kind of mentioned there, for true, real self, authentic self. Especially knowing that the self will one day cease to exist, so it's almost a film driven by anxiety um, to define yourself and to... Think less about the cause um, and more about defining yourself,
0: I think. I think the maybe the absence of causality is in order to sustain maybe the illusion of a firm reality in the movie. All those other films that you mentioned are kind of predicated upon... A device of some kind you know what if you could enter the mind of john malkovich what if you could erase your memory i actually think this film and adaptation share the most in common in the sense that their cinematic realities fold inward Mm -hmm. in accordance with the character losing themselves in their own self-reflection so the causality isn't physically present in the world like it is in eternal sunshine or being Monge- John Malkovich in this film, like it almost seems the causality, like you're saying the search for the self, but it's this, this character's desired objective, but the objective is hindered by the fact that Caden is kind of unable to distinguish present moments with past moments. Uh, there we, for we have like the, the mirror hall effect there are many images of reality present, but only one of them is the, is the original image. Every other image is the copy. So, for Caden, his attempt to copy reality, to find the truth, only causes truth to further evade him. And so, for me, when the end of the film comes, as moving as it may be, it, it does feel for me that Caden exists almost exclusively like in a, a simulation of reality where the world has become entirely composed of the symbols that were present in those previous previous stages of this, you know, synecdoche.
2: I think it's interesting the way you um say, describe it as a simulation at the end because as Ellen the character who is now directing playing, you know, him directing And he has switched and he's playing Ellen, the maid, cleaning Adele's apartment. She directs him. She instructs him, die. And so he dies. And I'm interested in in whether you think that um, is Caden free at that moment in that simulation when he dies? Or do you think he is more trapped? You said he doesn't exist. And I agree with you. There's this very small realm of existence and you you're aware of it in the film that other things are going on around you that you can't see or you don't know about such as the sort of apocalyptic setting that happens by the end of the film you know we see army tankers around as they enter the warehouse and leave the warehouse we have a man who says when can we get in we're starving out here but we don't know what's really going on so our world is small
0: but even those incidences we don't know there are warehouses, within warehouses. So, we don't know if the man saying, "When can we get in is outside of the warehouse or if it's in another stage of the warehouse, or do you think it's clearly defined
2: the only the only clear definition, i think you're right that there are all these layers inside the warehouse and they talk about it. We're building the warehouse inside the warehouse, and then mm. there's the map that he looks at you know that's fallen to the floor, which and he moves it with his foot is the warehouse of the warehouse of the warehouse, and it's these maps. But in that moment, I think the only reason that we're outside the largest warehouse is because he doesn't direct that person. When he moves through the warehouse, he's he's directing people. Even if he's having a conversation, he'll say to someone, you know, you don't, he'll give them like a motivation cue, or he'll tell them to adjust, you know, you wouldn't really walk that way. And he doesn't, he, and, and if you're not in his if you haven't been cast by him, then he kind of ignores you or he comes to start to ignore you and he ignores that man. Um, and it's it's a sad moment because it, it's, it even um, makes, you know, Caden so short-sighted because that moment, that man is asking him for help and he ignores that man, you know.
0: Well, he does say sorry, but that's, oh, that's, that's a, you know, a recurring response of his throughout the film is just to dispatch, sorry, sorry
2: isn't it like all of our sorries? like when people ask us for change on the train, you, you, you always say, sorry, but you don't, Mm -hmm. you don't reach in your pocket, you know? So, um, so, so I, so I'm interested in whether you and, and Jim think that in that moment where he dies in this kind of simulation, whether that's a moment of freedom for him or whether that's a moment of, of final constraint.
3: I think it depends on where you fall personally. I think that, uh, some people can interpret that as maybe going to another plane of existence and he has achieved some sense of freedom or even some form of self-actualization or it really is just everything fades and that's that's that for you know in terms of death but i think like caden is solipsistic uh narcissistic for much of this film and then Towards the end there, I think he's finally attained some kind of empathy by uh, experiencing the the life of Ellen, and even getting to um, experience what she's thinking and feeling directly with the earpiece and everything. So I think it teaches some form of empathy, and once Caden is a- actually able to cry for
0: real, he
3: feels more fully human in that regard.
0: I do have a question about Ellen, because we never actually see the the quote-unquote real Ellen, correct? Diane Wiest is not... She's playing Ellen. Right. And then the flashback of Ellen and her mom is identical to the commercial that Caden is watching while he's brushing his teeth in uh, the basement of his house. I guess, could that just mean that Ellen is... It's just a, a construction of Caden's, and Ellen and Caden are one and the same. The other thing that's unusual is the scene where uh, he visits Olive's deathbed. You know, she blames him for this homosexual affair that he had with a man named Eric, and Eric is the name of Ellen's husband. I, You know, is he performing as Ellen, and does that further obscure his ability to comprehend? His, for example, his own pain from the separation from Adele and Olive, or, or is it that, or does, you think it helps him better understand the pain of himself, but but of all others' pain? I mean, I have a, I I do find the ending of the film moving, but also simultaneously trivial to some degree, where he kind of starts saying, "Everyone is everyone," and it seems to be that. Charlie Kaufman is saying the purpose of life is death, and I kind of feel like, just me personally, you know the the point that should be being made is that there is no point to life at all, and that is what Caden. I'm not sure if he ever comes to terms with that or or
2: not. Well, I think what I think the Caden that we see, if we're looking at the character. Um, expression and then from from there try to understand maybe what the film is saying um cadence sort of doesn't really make any transient um um transcendent revelations about life he doesn't come to any you know epiphanies um he also doesn't come to great angst or rage or or tangible despair he just sort of comes to this place of acceptance and and his space gets smaller and smaller when he accepts Adele's offer to live in their closet. And I think that the the shift into him as as a, fe- a, fem- a feminine persona is something that is happening throughout the film. And I think that's the connection between, you know, when his daughter says they were, they're saying that you, you know, were late in homosexuality and that tortured you t- in such a way, um... Because in the very beginning when he has his first seizure, the person on the phone, the 911 dispatch, keeps using, you know, the she pronoun. She's like, ma'am, ma'am. So I think he, the character, has this mistakenness or I don't think Helen is made up in his mind Because I I think all of the abnormalities are all tangible. And so I think the commercial that he sees that is also her memory is it's part of all of these contradictions that happen that, you know, we're never given any sense of Caden has this mental condition that makes him project himself in places where he wouldn't be like like the other commercials where he his image is there, or when his you know, psychiatrist shows up on the airplane with him. Everything is to be taken as reality. The act, the characters receive it as a reality, and um, and we're never given anything to believe that it's not a reality. But I, I think that his his death is tragic in that he kind of just gives up. He gives up trying to figure anything out. He gives up trying to achieve anything. He gives up trying but to connect. But that could
0: be looked at as a moment of transcendence then.
2: I mean, there definitely feels this breath of release. Um, we we fade to white and it feels like a welcome death. You feel the exhaustion of life by that point in the film and the way he walks and the the low visibility, but low visibility gained through low contrast as opposed to high contrast or or darkness, there's a lot of light in that scene, but we still feel like we're not seeing a lot.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And even just him settling into the woman's arms, who I believe she's the woman in the commercial, in the scene that's Helen's memory as well as a commercial. And there is this very feminine world that he lives in. So I think that's what's happening I I kind of thought he would gain, you know, some kind of enlightenment or or compassion by living and cleaning and that kind of thing, but we don't really see any expression of that. We don't see it either in deed or in word, so I don't know that he receives that. I think he just gets to rest, I think.
0: But I guess, you know, you're saying to say that you take all of these things as this is reality, but couldn't you say that the film occupies a psychological realism? I mean, we didn't really address the question of, as to whether everyone or anyone agrees that the film is actually meta-realist. But these these visual motifs that you're talking about, I think could prescribe to some kind of psychological realism that we're, because we're seeing a film that's entirely from the perspective of a single character.
3: Yeah, I would agree with that, and um, Simone, you brought up the word fluidity, and that's something that um, occurred to me when I watched this for the third time a few years back, where it seems to have this fluidity of identity, even in terms of a gender binary, because there are allusions to Caden sort of finding his own anima, and like you guys mentioned him being, you know, potentially a closeted homosexual, so he's almost undefined and that might be his ultimate undoing and kind of the reason for his sort of existential crisis and depression so much like you know Woody Allen does in something like deconstructing harry he tries to define himself through this artistic creation but even that can't summarize every little nuance and the magic of a human experience so it sort of becomes an act of futility in a way. And maybe that's what he realizes during his last breath where he says something like, you know, he wants to, I know how to finish the play now and then he doesn't get to.
2: Yeah. I, I agree with you that, that um, there, that that statement felt this futility because it's finally after, you know, I think one at one point they mentioned that they've been working on the play that's in the warehouse for 17 years. Um, and, and he does have this you know struggle with this honesty to the point of futility, the way you say. The, one of my favorite, one of the moments that uh, I think is most telling in the film is when he is restaging an argument and his leaving the apartment from Claire, his second wife. And we've seen the scene in the film And then we see him in the warehouse staging the scene and Claire, who is his wife playing herself, is on this three tier or multi tier stage that is supposed to be the apartment building. And he says, you know, but he can you can see through the apartment building. So you Uh see her window, but then you see her move throughout the apartment itself. But in the scene where we saw it actually happen, where he left, he's looking, he's on the street looking up at the apartment building and he can only see her when she's in the window. When she moves away from the window, he can't see her. When that happens in the warehouse, he says, this isn't honest. And he's frustrated, he's agitated. And then he says, wall it up. It is this drive to be honest, the way Adele, his first wife, held him to after his production of death of salesman and now he's trying so earnestly to, to be there but it's futile because once that wall goes up it's actually not at all what happens when we experience art when we experience art is we get to see the things we didn't we didn't get to see in life we get to gain revelation so I think he doesn't gain revelation because he's burdened by this wanting to only make something that is exactly, what it was in real life and that's impossible
0: but do you think that is Caden's desire to be honest to be you know truthful to be self-expressive uh do you think that causes him to forget the necessity of an audience it certainly
3: seems that way yeah because I mean he's only interested in showing from his own perspective how things are it's fascinating that whole sequence where he is walking through trying to restage certain scenes in this giant warehouse with with different actors and you know he wants to try and capture realism but it's all staged and I think that's that's a really interesting sort of dichotomy to present you know and he's sort of trying to uh imagine what life should be like or could be like but he doesn't actually experience it himself and he wants to he's writing all these little notes for people to experience these things that maybe he wants to experience to some degree but i th- you know i think that the 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 reason people create art whether it's a play or a film or a song or even a podcast <laughs> it's it's <laughs> to find some kind of real truth that goes beyond a tangible reality um you know human emotion on a subjective level can't always easily be de- be defined but i think caden is trying to constantly define something but he just doesn't even know specifically what that is
2: yes i i agree and i think um the way that you mentioned that he he sort of misses that art you know can get to this inner truth or this truth that is is and I find that's what's happening and is part of, uh, Zach, you're saying that there are moments that are psychological, even if they defy physical. the physical world, there's a psychological world that they're expressing. And I'm interested in where those things fit in with Hazel's burning house.
0: Well, I let me just say, I don't necessarily believe that it is of psychological realism. It was, a, I was asking because I was curious um, because like when I think of, I guess, I mean, it was Jim just brought up this point of he's striving for realism, but it's staged, which I agree is one of the more fascinating themes of the film, because the fact that you have that conflict going on within a film that then is a piece of cinema creates this, this third layer of, How does one capture reality? And there are a lot of people that believe that realism is the default position of of film. It didn't have to lend itself to artifice in order to achieve natural realism the way that, that painting does. So I do think what's interesting about this film is that it is a cinematic expression told within the framework of theater, which is a completely different artistic practice and i don't know how other people feel about it but theater i would argue also relies on artifice to capture reality so is that tension felt within the film like the realism of theater versus the realism of cinema
3: Hmm, that's an interesting point i i would say that uh, there's a conflict there um and he's struggling with it too but i mean it's it's when I'm watching it, because I've always enjoyed films that are very theatrical, like, you know, it's essentially two characters in a room with something like the sunset limited, um, or David Mamet's Oleana, just, uh, you know, these really intimate films where it really just, uh, it's just about two people experiencing, uh, interpersonal strife or something along those lines. And, uh, here it's really, uh, the macro sort of, mixing with the micro in a way where it's like he wants to almost capture the entire world but he can't and there's a a tension felt at least when i'm watching it i feel a lot of things watching this movie first of all like i feel a sense of existential dread in certain instances oh that was i hear an interesting sound all of a sudden yeah
0: that is that's our toilet Hmm. Oh, it's singing it's, it's it's done it before, but okay, it's done now. sorry about that
2: <laughs> I but isn't that exactly the kind of thing that I feel like synnectagie is full of moments like that?
0: I'm gonna cut out the toilet so you don't have to address it in the
2: recording. no but but okay i I will get back to this because that was interesting,
0: yeah, that is interesting
2: <laughs> now
3: all I can think about are toilets. <laughs>
2: well, it's like when the faucet in the sink like attacks him, you know yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> no that's a good that's a good call, but i mean we 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 should probably address too the illusion of time in this film is really like I did not pick up on it the first time I saw it i mean oh. obviously <laughs> prepare- well, obviously preparing for this, you kind of know, but and upon rewatches, you pick it up a little bit more easily, but the first time I saw this, I guess I was just. Because of how my brain is adapted to narrative and the expectations of narrative, I was not expecting time to jump that rapidly in just in the
0: opening scene alone. Oh, yeah, you mean the passage of time? I yeah, I find that the the awareness of time can be overbearing. I want to say like almost a third of the dialogue in the first twenty minutes is is time based dialogue.
2: You're, he does do it a lot, and it, it may be to ad nauseum, but I think that where then it starts to be effective is when when Hazel says, your wife's, your wife's left you. He says she's on vacation. She says she's been gone a year. He goes, she's been gone a week. And, and then there's another moment where he, how old he feels that Olive is. He's like, she's a four-year-old. And then M- Maria yells back, she's almost over 11. And I think that is a is a very strong and effective way of actually capturing how time does feel as you mm-hmm. get older.
0: I'm sure the overbearing nature of the initial act also is, in some ways, it's working to condition the viewer to keep time at the forefront as you're watching the film unfold.
2: Yes. Yeah.
3: And the first image we see is of a alarm clock, mm-hmm. and then it's changing to seven forty five. And I think at towards the end, there's a a drawing on the brick wall as he's dying of a clock, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, which I believe says seven forty five as well.
3: Yeah. You know, the end is tied to the beginning, as they say in this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I find that interesting. I also just find the opening image of him looking in the mirror, looking away and looking back, and then puts his glasses on to get a better look. He's really unhappy with himself, just the way he sort of looks in the mirror and just, it's possible that he could have like a body dysmorphic disorder too throughout this movie, I think.
2: Yeah, I definitely think he's not comfortable in his body. His body almost fights against him the way you mentioned real tears, you know, he's diagnosed with, a a vague condition where he can't produce his own tears he can't produce his own saliva his attention to his fecal matter it just he he his the the boils on his skin he he continually has this agitation and he's in conflict with his body and I think that is I think that's a really strong way of expressing how that disconnect happens when people either have an an ill body or they have an aging body
0: and how much of that do you attribute to philip seymour hoffman oh man
3: yeah see that's the thing too is that it adds a whole other layer of melancholy watching this movie now he certainly played addicts and other people who have suffered greatly but he is just he's a complete natural in every regard And every single role I've seen him in, I just feel, you know, he he gets that character. But he just gravitates to these really sad, detached characters sometimes. And I feel this strong sense of compassion for who he was in general, based on all these different characters he was, and knowing that he struggled with addiction and, and things like that. And just, you know, the way this movie... Uh, Tries to encapsulate the human experience of life and then death and thinking about death. It's just, it's a sadder movie now because we've lost one of our great actors ever.
2: Yeah, and it is interesting that I agree with you that he, that Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think he taps into a still expressive um, performance style. He's, he expresses a lot even though he's, does little to convey it or to get it across and uh charlie kaufman's the men in 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 most of charlie kaufman's work there's something somewhat despicable about them um but then there's also this sadness that they that just hovers over them that is you know almost Mm self-perpetuating
3: yeah and each of charlie kaufman's protagonists they they do have an existential crisis of some kind and you know with being John Malkovich, it's almost like a denial of self and you know an adaptation it's really about self-acceptance in creating art And you know eternal sunshine is just uh, you know the self in relation to the other and where does that fit into you know how I experience a relationship And with this, it really to me it's it's a struggle for self and a struggle to maintain individuation in like you know what Carl Jung would probably call as self actualization and trying to achieve that is very difficult when you have so many factors and outside forces competing with you to try and attain some sort of real self
2: yeah i think i think it's interesting that you mention Carl Jung who the concept of your projection of the figures in your dreams and and the archetypes that are presented in, in dreams um as being, you know, a sort of collective unconscious. And I found a collective unconscious that starts to develop. And I, I we talked about the line where he says, we are Zach, you you said the line, I don't remember exactly how it goes, where he uh,
0: Everyone is everyone?
2: Right. Yes. Do do you, do you find, I found a sense of that interchangeable, especially when, you know, we have someone who's cast as Hazel, then the person um, who's been following him then is the person who's cast as Caden. This person falls in love with Hazel. So there seemed to be this transference beginning to happen. And I felt that that was A sort of dramatic expression of a collective unconsciousness.
0: I think it's just that's just the way things work out. Box everybody in a warehouse; they're going to start falling in love with one another.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I think a strong element is just this desire to compartmentalize, which I know can be viewed in a pejorative sense sometimes. But Caden really does that a lot throughout this story where he, he wants to make sense of other people and their personalities. And he wants to make sense of himself, especially. But even, he can't really get past himself most of the time. Like, even when Sammy jumps over the ledge, he can only think about, hey, I didn't do that. You're doing it wrong. Like, that's mm-hmm. his that's his response to a human being taking his own life.
0: Yeah, and I, I was curious about that moment. Is, is there anything revealed by having Sammy I mean, I feel throughout the film, he's the most well-adjusted character. And in some ways, I almost feel like his su- suicide proves that he is a, a deeper-feeling person because even even Caden can't bring himself to kill himself. I mean, well, wait, he's stopped. Okay. I guess even in that moment where Caden is stopped, I, I almost think he still he still wouldn't have done it. He still would have not made the jump. Yeah, I mean, it's
3: also interesting that Sammy winds up pretty much uh, entangled with all the same relationships that Caden has had. And that's that's one thing that even to this day, like people I know who love this movie, uh, uh, one friend in particular always says, how does Caden get to sleep with all these beautiful women? <laughs> Which uh, is, yes. I, know, I know it's a very superficial thing to bring up, but I can sort of see that uh, critique, I guess. What makes him such a magnetic figure for all these different women in his life?
2: I think that for each one of the women, his relationship with them is different, and Mm -hmm. he certainly is not drawing Adele to him at all. The primary relationship that seems to affect him the most and send him spiraling and despairing the most is that is the one with Adele. And she is not impressed with him. And Maria um, is, is quite cruel to him. We have a lot of women in, in the film. And we have Caden not really, we don't really see Caden's interaction other than with Sammy with men. And so when you consider that at first, Hope Davis's character, his psychiatrist, seems antagonizing. The line that you know she says after Adele says she fantasized about Caden being dead the psychiatrist asks, "Caden, does that feel terrible?" And he says, "Yes." And she says, "Good." You know, and there's a play—the way there is in many of the words. There's there's a play on how we interpret that. We understand why she said good, but at the same time, we, it's perceived as an extremely insensitive expression. And he has a hard time with the sexual advances that women give him. I think that the attraction that it, that he poses for Hazel seems to be the most biggest connection. You know, it's with Hazel that he laughs, that he actually has like that young flirty feeling or or energy. And then I think that Claire's interest in him comes in large part because of the dynamic of being an actress and wanting attention from her director. But also when he's in given the MacArthur grant, she becomes completely infatuated with him. Um, And then she, when she sees that he's not this genius that she thinks he is, she leaves him and, and and expresses a great deal of resentment. So I don't think he has... I think he has what ultimately are pretty typical relationships, that if we looked at people in our own lives and we looked at people in our lives, we would kind of see that he's, he's not so much the um, Casanova that sure. we see in the film.
0: But how much do you think is... The function of women orbiting Caden's life. Like, how, there's a lot of fictional work about male artists being defined by the female companions. I guess I wonder how much of it is just an archetype of this kind of story. The way I interpret Caden's relationships is that he wants these women to be the inspirations of his creative life. From his perspective, I do think that they somewhat become objects for him that are not fulfilling. They're not fulfilling the role that he expects from them.
2: I, I don't think they fulfill the role, but I don't think he necessarily wants them as inspiration. He wants, well, of Adele, it's very clear he wants her approval. Well, yeah, he but that's wants... a different, that's
0: a very different, his relationship with Adele, Adele is, I would say is the most difficult to navigate in the film. But I also, I, I do think that part of the problem there is that Caden behaves like her child rather than her husband. He sulks when she denies him validation for a death of a salesman. I I think he expects Adele to raise him into this great theater director. But I I do think that relationship is much more paternal than, say, his relationship with Hazel or Claire. It's it's pretty clear to me that Claire is just a sexual object for him.
3: Yeah, when they have sex. He even just sort of looks at her that way and says, wow, you're so beautiful. I have to fuck you. And I'm just like, "Ugh, that's kind of creepy. But then like contrast, there's kind of like this, you know, sort of bittersweet kind of interaction between the hazel that Emily, Emily Watson plays. And when they have a moment together in the bedroom, he is like, you know, admiring her, body and like how she can just be freely naked while he's really insecure about being naked and stuff. So that's, that could also lead to that, the idea of a body dysmorphic sort of disorder that he's experienced in his life. And you got to mention the last name of Caden, just because of me being interested in neuroscience, of course, um, the, the Cotard delusion is basically when one believes oneself to be dead, and obviously from the get go, Caden has this preoccupation with illness and and dying, and the whole film plays like a like a fever dream of some kind, and you know it's very Lynchian in that regard. But I also wonder if it's you know it's one of those ridiculous theories, but it's it's certainly possible that. We're sort of seeing his life flash before his eyes, in a way. Like, the beginning is, we have the clock, and he's awakening, but is he really? Maybe he's been dead the whole time, or this is his perception of the possibility of being dead this whole time. I don't know. It's just one of those weird things when I think of the Qatar delusion, where one believes oneself to be dead. It's interesting for Kaufman to choose that as his last name.
2: Yeah, I think it's very intentional uh, on Kaufman's you part. I think? <laughs> <laughs> he constantly does that. <laughs> that that points to what I think is, is the, for me, this film is is a large recursive image in that it feels like it's a mirror inside of a mirror inside of a mirror with the theater inside of a theater inside of a theater, but also with the way the form of the film does outwardly State its conversation. So by naming him Clotard, it's stating, and then so many of his lines are, you know, like Harold Pinter died. Oh no, he received the Nobel Prize. There is this constant awareness of him that he is dying. He he feels like a person who is dying from from the first shot. Yes, and whether it's literal or whether it remains to be the metaphorical expression, it's very clear that that is what, and that everyone dies around him. You know, Hazel dies, his daughter dies, Adele, we have a line of Adele's death. Sammy dies before him. So I think that the character is entrenched in death, but it does not come as soon as he would like it to.
0: But can I ask a question because you use the word metaphor. So going back to, you know, this question of meta-realism, I guess I question whether this film is exploring what you're describing through symbolic imagery or metaphorical imagery. Do you feel as though the images in this film contain a definitive meaning? I do. Right, so that would render them symbolic rather than metaphorical because metaphorical images have indefinite meaning.
2: Yes, and I know it's usually understood that weaker art um, steeps itself in symbolism.
0: I'm not suggesting that, just to be clear. I'm just, I'm just stating that I don't. That would be, I guess, my, my greatest argument to, to state that the film would not be meta-anything meta then. To some degree, all art, you could argue, is its own form of meta-language. It's one person attempting to express information about themselves and convey their experience to other people and by that nature like art becomes the pretext of life but i don't think this film roots itself in the conventions of you know meta realism or metaphysical realism as like a you know an aesthetic practice
2: no i don't think it
0: does
3: i don't think so either and it's but you know at the same time we are experiencing this movie from somebody who's trying to make sense Of himself and an external reality. So it it sort of like produces this distorted view. And I think that's that's kind of why, like when I first saw this movie, you're walking in. I mean, obviously, I know I'm walking in because I love Charlie Kaufman and I'm expecting him to challenge me and I welcome that. And I want something that's going to, you know, sort of give a lot of food for thought. And I've got that. (laughs) And I still do, even though I've seen this like five times. Every time I watch it, I get to think about something new. But um, I walk in and I am expecting a traditional A to B to C kind of narrative. And I think the film presents itself that way. But at the same time, he is deliberately messing with your expectations from the get-go, especially with even just the, the way the credits, the credits go by pretty quickly. Like, I'm used to them lasting maybe a couple more seconds, but even that seems to, like, dissolve really quickly. And, you know, from the breakfast scene and just, you know, him going to the doctors, even in the moments with the doctors, something I noticed that he has brought up all the way going back to being John Malkovich is language barriers, or, I mean, miscommunication. Where, you know, he mishears urologist for neurologist and that office secretary and being John Malkovich, she always mishears things. So yeah, it's just like I I think Kaufman is really fascinated with subjectivity and how we perceive reality.
2: Yes, I think so. And one one of the startling miss Misheard words, misheard language. You know, we usually don't hear the 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 mishearing that Caden, but we do hear it when his therapist tells him about the book, um, Little Winky, I think. Remember it was called, (laughs) written by the four year old, and and she then says, which I think that interlude is hilarious. I think it's very, I think that's strong comedic writing. But then she says that the four year old who wrote the book killed himself um, when he was five. And Caden repeats it in a question that he killed himself. And she says, well, wouldn't you? And, you know, he's sort of startled by that. But we hear her. We we do hear her say, wouldn't you? And then when he's startled by it, then she repeats it. And instead she says, I forget what the correction is.
3: I think she says, didn't you?
2: Oh, that's right. That's right.
3: And that sort of made me think also, well, maybe... Maybe he's really dead (laughs) and we're sort of experiencing like this weird sort of fever dream from the perspective of somebody dying. But I don't know. I don't think there's a lot to back that up.
2: Right. No, I, I, I don't think that he's actually dead. I think we're watching him as he lives and as he dies. But I think that the moments that seem like that, didn't you, you know, and then the change or the moment of her just appearing. On the plane, and then he returns back to the book, and the book ends, and the pages are empty. I think those are all real moments. those are moments that don't just happen in his mind. I don't think they are functions of his imagination or dysfunctions of his imagination.
0: no, and I'm not i don't I don't disagree with that, but I am my argument earlier was just that there is people I think the, the term me- realism sometimes gets mistaken with reality. And film, I don't think, portrays a reality, but I think it can portray many different forms of realism. So I guess even if those things are really happening, they could be existing within a framework of psychological realism. Now, I don't necessarily agree with it because I think an example, say, of psychological realism in film that is maybe the most infamous is the sequence in Vertigo where Jimmy Stewart kisses Kim Novak in the hotel room and the camera tracks around them and then the hotel room shifts into the stable and and Jimmy Stewart acknowledges that shift. Caden never responds or reacts to, say, spatial shifts within the film. I think at, what's at stake instead is that we're sort of almost mapping his mental process, which is con- struggling to combine, like, all these memories these gestures these dialogues and have them coalesce into a like almost a single image within the story so it's almost like the movie sometimes for me feels like it's housed within a room that has a a door that you enter on the left but a door that you exit the room on the right so there's never there's never like a an exact closure or a, or a point of origin for everything that you're seeing
2: yes and and so where do you fit hazel's house burning in that
0: i actually think that the evolution of the film's own image i find pretty straightforward and i think that's that is benefited from what you guys are talking about the fluidity of the film and the fluidity of time in the film it's almost like the film exists in four planes of some kind of reality you know initially the camera is the mirror and and we are getting the reflection that next stage is followed by a distortion in that reflection, and that's that stage is where the burning house exists. That's where cadence shadow manifesting as a person exists. But then you get another stage which is then followed by like the the absence of a reality. We don't know anymore what is, say, the the reality and the staged reality and then like i said concluding you conclude within an image that is essentially a copy of the original but has become something of its own so it becomes a simulation um and that is where the the film arguably becomes most sentimental is in that is in the simulation
2: i definitely agree with the the way the simulations are sentimental the film itself but then also the scene of Sammy's funeral. You know, it's another scene that we see back to back. We see Caden experience Sammy's funeral and then we see Caden staging Sammy's funeral. And in the staging of it, there's like gospel music. That's also where the facade of theater becomes really apparent. The wigs are really bad. The costuming is is really cheap. Caden's well,
0: wearing a wig himself, I believe in that moment. He's now, he's put, a wig on that Diane Weiss's character is also wearing they're both wearing wigs
2: and that's the one where Diane Weiss steps up and directs like or Helen right. steps up and and directs
0: she's directing
2: yes yeah, so i think that there is you know a sentimentality charlie kaufman has embedded in what caden is doing and what starts to happen around what caden is doing but i i'm so interested in the house burning because caden experiences these Magical realism moments—these moments that wouldn't exist in the physical world, but everyone around accepts it. But none of the uh, the other characters never really experience them, except as part of manifesting these peculiarities that he has. Well, Hazel, but does. Hazel does. She's the only one who even has like conversation that's similar to what Caden has. Her conversation with the real estate agent is so frustrating. It's so relatable. But as she's saying, well, I just don't know if I want to live in a in a house that that's burning, or I don't want to die. And and the woman just says, well, everyone, yeah, has to think about their own debt. like as as if what you're saying is not anxiety driving that it just is commonplace. Caden has met with that often, so I am really interested in whether that's just something that I'm seeing or whether it is consistent in the film that hazel's the only one who experiences
3: well it's interesting because we mostly see from caden's perspective but that's a scene where caden's not there physically present that's uh just hazel interacting with the real estate agent but also um you know if you want to get symbolic um you know freud would say that the house represents the mind and since I, I sort of ascribe to, you know, looking at movies as these fever dreams often, I would like to think that's a very strong possibility that uh, the house represents the mind. And if the mind is on fire, it's experiencing some sort of mania or psychosis. And that could, again, just sort of be Caden's reality sort of interfering with actual reality. But what strikes me, is, again, is that it's it's Hazel interacting with this real estate agent and deciding actively to purchase this house, which is really interesting. I mean, I, I love, that's, that's kind of the make it or break it moment. That's actually when I saw it in a theater, there were people who turned on the movie at that point (laughs) because they're like, this is ridiculous. Why, what, what is the house on fire? You know, this sort of breaks all the rules.
2: Yeah. And, and, and for me, I more had the response that you had where I thought it was a strength of the film. It really is yeah. where the film becomes into it comes into its own. But it is clear I can understand why others may have a reaction to it. We don't have a lot of magical realism in film in the U.S. and we don't have it in literature Either Usually we have what we saw in his other films, where we have some sort of reason or mm-hmm. a definition of the world that says this world's a little bit different than the one we live in. But in Synecdoche, he does not give that at all. It is to be the world that we are in, and yet these things are accepted and the characters don't. She doesn't respond. This is ridiculous that this house is on fire. Why is this house on fire? And as it continues to burn as she grows older, um, and and the burning ages, you know, it's not the same age stage of fire. There she there's never, you know, a sense of, well, this is impossible, or someone asking her, why is your house on fire? And I like that. I, I think that that those are strong qualities in the film because those are where these moments feel it's a capturing of how we experience certain things in life, how the human mind experiences certain things in life. And then, as you mentioned earlier, Jim, the subjectivity of experience. But I do think that there are other aspects of the film that weaken its expression of that. And I think that's, I mean, I I, I think it's, I like the weaknesses because I feel that's exploration. I feel that's Charlie Kaufman exploring or, or trying to do something that's a little different than you know, the way his screenplays are handled by other directors.
3: I think there's a lot of grace and charm in imperfections. And I think this movie is one of the most profound emotional experiences I've ever had. And it really comes down to having had a near death experience seeing my father pass away and to some degree reading uh Roger Ebert's piece about this movie while he was practically facing his own death it's just like a, a, a sort of an all encompassing life affirming movie for me but it also captures like this really cr- like existential dread like when he's having a seizure or you know really s- realizing that he hasn't you know, contributed to society, so some, to society in some profound way. So there's a lot of reasons to find pleasure in the questions that you get from watching this movie. I don't. I don't even consider them to be flaws. I just. I like go- going. Well, what is that all about? <laughs> Including the house on fire to some degree, but it also uh, serves as the environment for one of the most moving scenes when when Hazel passes away and they have a real. Humane moment together.
0: I'm I'm curious what your reactions are to how he portrays the death of Olive, uh, proceeding with a past memory followed by then their interaction in the hospital.
2: I think that that scene is the scene where we see Caden's inability to act and inability to move in the c- clearest way um, that his daughter is dying and. His attempts were so futile to pull her away, even though his instincts were that she was not in the best situation being with Adele. But what I also find really frustrating or complex about that scene is that, you know, words are being put in his mouth when he puts the translator on so that he can hear her in German. And but but he can hear her speaking German, but he hears English, and then he can speak in English, and she hears it in German, and she demands for him to take accountability for these things that we haven't seen him do in the most tangible way. And it it is like the commands that then Ellen gives him. It's it's also like the commands where he gives the post-it notes. And with a great deal of bitterness, he says, you know, I'm going to give you what my God gives me. And then he even turns those notes, the post-it notes become this earpiece where he is speaking to his characters and then he gets these commands. And that was where we kind of first see that sort of auditory in your head, um command and and him also just giving you know stating that reality stating that identity that is being foisted on him and confirming it you know just because these are the lines that are mm-hmm. being told to him and so it seems to be looks like me, an actor
0: with a screenplay
2: yes mm-hmm. yes i really think so and and i so i can understand why people may use that or confuse this for meta realism because of that but i don't think it is meta realism according to what i think is the most salient understanding of meta realism which is that something is beyond the reality that we see and inside of the film all of these layers of reality are still within the world that the that the characters occupy yeah. there isn't actually another world that they're not aware of they are in you know what is the pinnacle or thrust of all of this but that seems to be that moment I feel is the height of his of the futile efforts that he's made it's the height of his lack of control and it's the height of his own failings and I think it almost becomes like this um gravity in the film it it starts to really tie some of the things that feel disparate sort of pulls them, like, into this moment of a black hole where everything compresses in that moment and then spreads out again from there.
3: Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. I mean, the height of his failings is sort of represented there uh, really poignantly in a way. And, I mean, I think I think Charlie Kaufman is really interested in the idea of solipsism. I mean, he even brings that up in adaptation directly at one point. And I think it's just... Caden is very lost inside of himself to really acknowledge even his own daughter we know he calls Olive his real daughter and is kind of tormented about losing her and tries to think of a way to reconnect with her and all he can think of is look in her diary and see that her favorite color is pink so I'll just get her something pink and then send it to her Um, that's actually one of the bigger laughs is the (laughs) <laughs> the, the store clerk just presenting him with something, and she goes, "This is pink." <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's like it got a nose on the box.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, and then even when he finds the nose on the box, and the reason that we have for him putting the teardrops is is this condition where he can't create saliva, he can't create tears. But it, it again is like an actor putting the teardrops in, and then he goes and grabs yeah. the box and sits and has a good cry.
0: Uh, I I did have I do have a question sort of about architecture plays a pretty significant role in the film and the way that characters interact with space. So I was sort of wondering, how do you perceive Caden's relationships with the spaces that he inhabits? Are they just spaces for him to transcribe them literally, or do they do you think they hold some you know symbolic meaning to the character and do you feel that we ever see when he's reconstructing these scenes and landscapes from his life? Do you feel like he ever, he's ever very specific about the space other than just, you know, the literal uh, translation of it?
3: It's interesting because even at the beginning, like I mentioned with the mirror imagery, he seems like kind of confined and even just them in the kitchen, it's a little confined. So, I mean, it could just be representative of, you know, him being sort of compartmentalized in his own mind and his environment and the architecture kind of reflects that to some degree, I think.
2: Yes, I think he's completely uncomfortable in his space and he tries to clean. There's a lot of dirty spaces in this film. Mm -hmm. And when he tries to clean them, He takes his toothbrush out of his mouth and begins scrubbing this grimy floor. It's another futile attempt because it doesn't get any cleaner from his uh, efforts. Spaces do shift on him the way you mentioned Zach earlier and he doesn't seem, he has these Alice in Wonderland moments, but unlike Alice who balks and and complains and, and defies when the space changes, He doesn't. He just accepts it. Like
0: he doesn't get any bigger either.
2: Oh, (laughs) what do you mean? Oh,
0: yes.
2: (laughs) Right. No, but but you're right. But I think that. But I mean, I think that's an express. I I do think that's significant in that he doesn't grow. He doesn't. You know, he doesn't fit his environments when they change around him.
0: I I think actually physically, Charlie Kaufman does a lot of different things that frequently deny Caden any kind of real intimate correspondence with his space. The opening shot of the film you mentioned with the mirrors, that sequence really interests me because we open with Caden in bed through a mirror, and then he gets up and the camera then pans right and follows him, and we see him again reflected through a mirror, but it's a different mirror it's almost as if there's two doorways right next to each other with mirrors hanging off the back of them. And it's sort of a question for me, is you know is that symbolic of anything or is it just a necessity of the production? It was, you know, they wanted to keep him in a reflection, so they just cheated. Um, but it almost, it immediately teaches the viewer not to trust any spatial reality within the film and then as it progresses you know it it then goes as far as it conceals the real new york from caden and from the audience to where we're just within the constructed new york and that also makes me you know question do you ever feel like the physical city renders any significance within the story like either symbolically or geographically or is New York just as a reference so that Kaufman and and not just New York City but synecdoche New York is it just reference so that he could enact like this pun of the title and is New York just it's the mecca of all American cities so you know and so densely populated that it just it's where the story has to take place or do you feel like the space really speaks some way to the story? It's funny because like you mentioned not
3: being able. To sort of trust the spatial components that Caden finds himself in. And, you know, what popped into my mind is just the fact that he can't even trust his own bathroom sink from exploding on him. You know, and so it's it's almost like his environment is fighting with him to some degree. You know, even thinking the half floor in being John Malkovich... Even, to some degree, the the house in Montauk in Eternal Sunshine, when that starts dissolving. So, I mean, he definitely considers these things as being maybe some sort of manifestation of what the character
0: feels. I, I guess what I find compelling about the film's reference to the actual city, for instance, Synecdoche, New York, the city, that is a real location, but it isn't a space in popular culture that already contains defined iconography that is like uh, inherently indexical, like, like the way John Ford and Monument Valley, where, you know, those images are nothing more than images within movies. And yeah, they conjure this historical and emotional identity, but we don't have, we don't know much of, you know, what is a imaginary construction of the city and what is the real, I mean, it's, it's something that in movies in general fascinates me just because of the way that films are shot. But like, I even think about like Hitchcock's uh, family plot, which I find really compelling because he stages the story within an imaginary city that combines San Francisco and Los Angeles geography. Oh, yeah, I think of that with Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of that one. But to some degree, all films do this locations in Atlanta serve as locations for Los Angeles or Cleveland serves as New York. But that's not as much as a deliberate creative choice as it is like, that's a mode of production. Whereas like in this film, Caden's character does that, but it's simply by replicating the New York around him. Or is it the New York? Like that's what's what I find interesting is it's like he purchases this warehouse and the saleswoman is able to convince him the theater was staged in what looks like a football stadium. It establishes that Clay, Clay Caden doesn't have any intimate relationship with the the location that he's about to replicate. So it, it's like, is Caden's reconstruction of New York, a replica or simply a landscape that replicates the locations within the city that he knows. And it kind of like disregards the surrounding geography because the other thing that's interesting, I mean, I live in New York, Simone lives in New York, and when I watch the film, what I find interesting is that I don't really, the typical iconography that you associate with New York, you don't see it really within the warehouse.
3: That's interesting, yeah.
0: Is it like that he just, he chooses to disregard it, or is it because he, he has explored such a small portion of the city that he only knows Adele's apartment and his apartment? Because it's even like he moves, when him and Claire divorce, he moves in the apartment next door. Like, yes. like it just is. There is no sense of like really getting to know your surrounding geography.
2: Yes, I think you are right on target with that. He is replicating a small part of New York, and it is a reflection of his limited experience. It's 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 you know Fourteenth Street and below. Mm-hmm. And there are, I've you know, there are people in New York. I worked for a writer who very much, I won't say bragged about it, but he was very confident or proud of himself that he had ne- not been. No, and, and like I'll be honest, I hardly
0: ever have to leave Brooklyn, so right. it's not like you know, like I for I'm not trying to replicate the city, you know, like I like if I was gonna do it, I, I guess I would think that I would be more considerate of. I need to get to know this landscape intimately.
2: Yes, but Caden isn't that kind of that's one of that's one of the things that we continually see as as sad about Caden is that I don't he's not presented as being aware that he is only capturing a small part of New York, um, and and the writer that you know I knew who was so glad that he had never gone north of 14th Street. That there's a reason that some of you know this identification is that I am a more authentic village artist, you know, New Yorker because I'm you know because I live 14th Street and down, and I have no use for going to the commercialized places in of New York City, and so I think that's a part of Caden I think that's an expression of Caden I think the filmmaking is very aware of that and it's a goal of the filmmaking to keep a, a small vista or perspective of New York uh, the production design you know unlike a lot of films made today I feel the production design takes the lead on setting the aesthetic um expression of the film it's not with camera movement it's not even with composition and part of that aesthetic is really driven to show small spaces even as spaces get large they remain small you know they just remain sections of a small space and even that warehouse as large as the image of it is we don't see, you know, it. It's so cluttered. It's so, you know. Well, it's, it seems as though he's
0: built. He's also built warehouses within that warehouse. So it's like, oh yes, he's condensed that space.
2: Well,
3: doesn't doesn't key yes. just mean part of the, of a whole?
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: So I mean, it's 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 almost like literally just taking that idea, and only Caden can construct a part of his environment and not the whole. You know, not, not the whole New York City. We're certainly not going to get that or we're not going to even just get anything outside of what he knows, essentially.
0: Just to follow up on that, which is maybe a more like, is a broader question, but do you guys care about geographical realism? Is it important that if Charlie Kaufman is going to set his film in New York and call it New York City, that he actually accurately capture aspects of New York life?
3: I don't think it matters in this case. I mean, with Woody Allen in Manhattan, it's almost like the the city is a character in of itself. So you kind of want him to be somewhat realistic in capturing that universe that he knows so well. And he, he he obviously many directors do that, like Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee. But I don't know. I think just because Charlie Kaufman is Charlie Kaufman, he's not going to do something like that. He's sort of going to create his own universe through the eyes of this character.
2: Yeah, I think it's important that he capture New York, but it it can I think New York as probably any spaces can be captured in many different ways. And I do think that he successfully conveys a specific type of New York and it is that vill- it is the West Village. Um not, you know, the West Village from the 1980s, but, you know, from the late 90s. Dirty, you know, littered streets.
0: Yeah, but every street in New York is dirty and littered. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yes, but when you're up around, when you're on Fifth Avenue, you know. Oh, well, yeah no, up around, yeah, no, that's, you know, yeah. That, and the thing is, is New York is a very interesting city compared to other American cities in that it it's so present in movies that <laughs> yeah. when I grew up in Atlanta, even without ever having been to New York. I mean, And you you said this, Zach, that there are all these icons. And so you think all New York is Central Park. You think New York is, you know, is Fifth Avenue. And, and so when you come to New York from outside, there is a way that you see it that's very different. And I think that I do think Charlie Kaufman captures the way when you see the village and the way it's not big skyscrapers, it's not giant buildings, um, it's this, Dirty, dilapidated, you know, very peopled gray coloring, mm-hmm. you know, I think he does successfully capture that. The inside spaces also feel like very New York with books on walls and on tables and yes, things cluttered all over, and very lived in spaces. I think that um and even the psychiatrist' office is is becomes very spatial for i mean, in our composition. We have him so far away, but then when when his psychiatrist goes up the ladder, for, to get her wall of books, you know, and bring him a book, she's so high above him, and and then she feels in like that she's invading the space when she sits beside him to talk about Little Winky. So I think that's an accurate New York psychiatrist space, but he accentuates in a disorienting way everything's just a little bit off everything's just a little bit more than what it is in reality
3: that definitely makes sense i know people who you know will recognize a certain city in a movie and be taken out of it for a little while and it's almost blasphemous to not like the movies ferris bueller and blues brothers because i live in chicago (laughs) you know it's like people really do define certain movies by where they're filmed or the landscapes that they capture and things like that but you know there's certain there's many examples of this world has taken place in this town when actually they're filming in Vancouver Canada but you know and that never bothers me you know it's like I I just want to get immersed into the world the story
0: the characters something this film often reminds me of And Simone, you're going to laugh, but the Walt Whitman poem, do I contradict myself? (laughs) Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I have multitudes. I I just feel like this movie is asking how many multitudes can be contained at once. That's hard to know. Yeah.
3: You know, and Caden is kind of the part of society, but the outside world is the whole, and- You know, everyone is everyone, man. (laughs) You know, that's kind of what really it's saying. Like, we're all connected, but we shouldn't get too lost in our own psyches and our own plights because we could lose sight of the experience of living amongst other people and, and being in the world, being present in the world. Like, I know this movie it doesn't sit well with a lot of people because they immediately gravitate towards this idea of it being a depressing experience. I mean, it might revel at some, at some instances at the idea of being in despair and nobody wants to dwell in misery, but even like, like the pastor during his, his speech says that nobody wants to hear about how sad and how angry I am and how I feel Well, then fuck everybody, you know? And I don't think Charlie Kaufman is trying to say, you know, fuck people or fuck humanity. It's just, let's be real. Let's embrace our vulnerability. And when we feel sad or angry, we should have the freedom to express
0: that because it's what makes us human. Right. And I I think in some, to some extent, that goes back to what you were saying about compartmentalizing in the sense that people want to compartmentalize that they watch Films to make themselves feel better about themselves, you know, or allow them to experience some complete detachment from reality or a detachment from themselves, and I th- I think to demand that of everything that you see is a bit absurd. So as we conclude this discussion, you both clearly express a great deal of affection for this film. So I'm I'm sort of curious in what ways does Synecdoche, New York maybe. Renew your perception of the world? Like when you leave the film, are there new observations that you make about yourselves or the life around you you wouldn't otherwise?
2: Yes, absolutely for me. When I first saw the film, I was already a person who thought that Charlie Kaufman is one of the strongest American screenwriters today, making work today. Also, because I felt that he's doing something that I think is different. His form seems to really try to marry with its content. If something feels out of sorts, then we see things that are out of sorts. And so it's very emotional, this particular film. But this particular film, Synecdoche, uh, also is, ha- lacks high drama and it lacks, you know, high stakes. It lacks a lot of the things that that have just become inherent with the American film viewing experience. And for me, you know, I saw the film and actually felt good about life. I I felt that the film captures fright and fear of aging, fright and fear of contributing um, through some expression of work that Caden's trying to make. And that's something that I could I could relate to. And I do think most human beings can relate to that, you know, whether it's through their children, or whether it's through their career, people are hoping to leave something significant, they're hoping to have made a difference. And unfortunately, there is no moment that sort of nicely says, you know, no character comes to Caden and says, you made a difference in my life. And in fact, it's, it's Hazel that is that person for him, who made a difference for him, who gave him, brought him company, um, brought him friendship and true companionship. He never really does that for anyone else. So it becomes a tragedy, but it doesn't become a tragedy in, in the strictest Greek sense of it becomes a warning, you know, but not one that doesn't feel elated at the end. And that could simply be because of the symbolic cues of the bright, the, the fading to white. But I think that there's a peacefulness in the way Ellen's voice says, now die. And so I think that the film has more of a, through this process, through going ahead and letting itself have a good cry, letting itself fall to the depths of despair, there is an elation that comes from that, um, that I think all the form of the film is trying to express in addition to the narrative of the film. There also was a sense for me that the film also says, relax, you don't have to do a thing. And there, there, and I think that's something that comes with age um, is this sort of feeling comfortable in your skin. And even though Caden, again, Caden is a warning, Caden doesn't ever get there. But in us watching a person who doesn't get there I think it allows for us to think about how would we get there. Also, having seen it when I was, there was a moment where Hazel says that she's 36. When I first saw the film, I was not yet 36. And then when I've seen it more recently, I am after 36. And the difference in my mind you know, the difference in, you know, feeling my youth and, and at the time I thought I was a grown up, you know, and at every age you're at, you keep thinking you're a grown up, you look back on it and you're like, oh, my God, I was so young. Um, so I think that it, it is a film that a lot of people, it feels to me like the experience of reading a book. I can return to it. I can I live in it when I'm watching it because the set design is so detailed and prevalent. Um, but then also every time I come back to it, given where I am in my age it speaks to something else. And I think that the thinking of Walt Whitman's films, I mean, Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, is absolutely accurate, containing many multitudes and Do I Contradict Myself? And that's extremely ambitious of a filmmaker to try to do. It's ambitious. And I think in a lot of ways, the areas where it fails are beautiful failures. And without those failures, um, we wouldn't have... A work that seems so true.
3: Uh, I don't think I need to say anything else. No. <laughs> you really summed that up beautifully, Simone. Yeah, I mean, for me, this the experience of this movie is anything but joyless. And I find it to be incredibly life-affirming. Although at the same time, when he's experiencing those symptoms... It really does tap into something primal for me. It taps into something that uh, an anxiety, an existential terror of the human body eventually deteriorating that I think anyone can experience at any time in their lives, whether if it's a fear of getting cancer or Alzheimer's or any of those things, or just, you know, having a weird symptom and having to go to the doctor to figure out what's going on. It's a crazy experience. It's a roller coaster watching this movie when you can have those feelings of familiarity within yourself that you see portrayed visually in a way that's mostly absurd, but also kinda of scary. And then by the time we get to the end, it becomes something sublime. And it's in the journey is the destination, but even the destination says volumes about um the human experience in general. And I think everybody needs to also read what Roger Ebert had to say about this film because it really strikes to the core of how great of a writer he was, but how he was able to personally inject sentiment and uh, personal experience into a review like that. I just, I just think we need more artists like Charlie Kaufman who are unafraid to project their thoughts and fears onto paper, which can turn into these really beautiful images And still manage to have a sense of humor, and all these elements just stick into your subconscious for the long haul. So I just I think this is a profound work of art, and one of the greatest movies I've seen in my life.
0: that's our show for this week i hope you guys enjoyed our conversation on charlie kaufman's synecdoche new york i'd like to thank my guest jim laskowski who can be heard on the director's club and pop culture club podcasts which can be found at directorsclubpodcast.com and popcultureclub.net both podcasts are part of the now playing network which is an entertainment network jim created like i said at the start of the show there is a lot of great content available through the Now Playing Network, and I strongly encourage you check out everything that they have to offer. You can visit their site at nowplayingnetwork.com. I'd also like to thank Simone Barhos, my co-host, for joining me once again this week. You can read and view Simone's work at stochasticartworks.tumblr.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the film or respond with any feedback you may have, you can do so by sending an email to podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Google Plus, Stitcher Radio, and subscribing to our iTunes feed. Where you can also leave in a review, which really helps us out, really expands uh, our listenership. So if you have a few minutes after listening to the show, it would be a great help to us if you could write us a review on iTunes. And please be sure to visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive to start your free audible.com trial today. Thanks for listening. Check back in a few weeks for our next episode, and until then, remember to keep on jiving.